Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hey, everybody. Thank you for coming back to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santi, joined today by a couple of uh, folks that I discovered uh, in Exchange Magazine reading their article, and I'm really glad they're here. So first, we have Chad Nunnemaker. Uh, oh, go ahead, Chad. <laughs> Hi, Heather. Thanks for having us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Do you want to tell anybody anything about you? Tell folks why they should listen Yeah, sure. <laughs> Uh, well, let's see. Um, I uh, I got my first job uh, working with young children in 2004, so I've been around for a little bit, yeah. um, and uh, I've had a lot of different experiences. I've worked with children from infants and toddlers all the way up through 11 and 12 year olds. Um, I've uh, I did my bachelor's in early childhood education at Wright State. Uh, I did my master's in early childhood leadership and advocacy at the University of Dayton. Um, I also recently finished a certificate in early education leadership from the uh, Zanes Academy at uh, Harvard Graduate School of Education. And uh, right now I I am a PhD candidate in early childhood. And um, I've held a lot of different roles over the years. I've been in the trenches. I've run, uh, helped run uh, centers and administrative roles and uh, been a kindergarten lead. Um, so I've done uh, just a lot of different things over the years and um, worked with, um, I've always had a, a really strong interest in, in working with children who had what some people would label as behavioral challenges. And mm-hmm. I think that ties into some of the things we'll be talking about today yeah. related to self-regulation. And, um, and yeah, and, and I've always considered myself an early childhood nerd. Um, <laughs> And that's but not what that I say. early childhood. Exactly. And that's what I, uh, I even say that to my students. So, uh-huh. um, I, I think that this field is uh, the most important thing that you can do uh, with your time is work mm. with young children and families. Yeah. Thank you. I, I actually, I just did a, um, a video where I, so I teach at a college, a community college, and um, I'm going to get to you, Dr. William, I promise. Hold on. <laughs> um where the students were telling me the, the, the sad and discouraging and condescending things people said to them when they found out they were majoring in early childhood education. And it made me sad. It didn't surprise me, but it made me sad. And so I asked some folks, a lot of the, my regular co-hosts on the podcast and just some other people to make just like a one minute video of what would you say to somebody who's in, who's going, you know, going into major in, in this. And then we put it into a big compilation and it's, it's so wonderful, um, and uh, uh, I hope that it helps folks coming in because what you said, Chad, it's so important, the work that, that we're doing, all of us here, and, um, and that we are educated and, and committed to, to learning about what 
what that is. And so I'm, that's one of the reasons I'm really excited about this conversation. Thanks. All right. So also, <laughs> it's not just me and Chad. I'm also joined uh, by Dr. William Mosier. Uh, oh, I might have said your name wrong all over again already. Okay. All right. Um, and he, so tell us about yourself, Dr. William. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm William Mosier. And uh, as uh, I consider one of my best um, experiences in the field of early childhood education is being um, Chad's professor of early childhood education when he was getting his bachelor's degree from Wright State University. Uh, I first started in early childhood in, in the inner city in St. Louis, Missouri, where I worked with children in a looped classroom. That means I had children who were five, six, seven, eight, and nine all together in the same classroom. And the children would loop with me from year to year. So I would have the same child for three years, which really helped children have someone that they could attach to that they felt comfortable with as they're learning. And that classroom was called the special adjustment classroom. So as Chad had mentioned about kids with behavior. Yeah, we always put that in quotes. <laughs> right. Um, I had the classroom in the basement of this four-story elementary school where kids were kicked out of kindergarten, first grade, second grade, or third grade, and dumped into my classroom. And so I wrote a federal grant to, to turn it into a looped classroom, and it got funded. So I was able to have kids stay with me for three years. Then um, after I finished my master's degree in early childhood education, I went back home to California. I'm a native Californian and I uh, got my doctorate at University of Southern California in child development, early childhood education. And I ran migrant Head Start programs up and down the state of California in 17 counties. So I would design child development centers for the children of migrant farm workers because of my fluency in Spanish. And I would then train the staff um, to work with the children. And it was a powerful experience. Then when I finished my doctorate, uh, eventually 20 years teaching in the university. And now I'm living in Istanbul, Turkey. <laughs> as the medical director at a rehabilitation center for the children of Syrian refugees who have many, many behavioral problems due to the traumatic experiences the they've trauma. had. Yes, and, and I'm a full professor at um, Istanbul Galician University All right. in 
professor of child development in the School of Health Sciences. All right. Thank you. I'm really glad you're both here. Um, so the article that we're going to talk about, I don't have the date on my printout, but I know it's a few years old. And when I first reached out, uh, I think it was you, Chad, you were like, why did this come up for you suddenly? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the article is called Promoting Inquiry-Based Science Education. And it came up when I was teaching a curriculum course last fall when I just did like a search for some science articles. Um, and uh, I think I think it's must read. I think that everyone should go to Exchange, and if you don't have the subscription, use one of your five free articles to get this one. <laughs> <laughs> so the quote we're going to start our conversation with is: um, During early childhood development, it's important to remember that the process is more important than the product, especially when engaging engaging in inquiry learning. How can educators support the development of inquiry without the inquisition? <laughs> And I love that phrase. <laughs> so first, I want to just ask you about that, like, like speak to, to maybe your purpose of writing the article, but also that idea of inquiry without the inquisition to set the sort of the foundation for the rest of a conversation. conversation. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll go first. Um, the, uh, I, I think this really emerged from just our, you know, uh, Dr. Mosier and I, we both have done um, training over the years with teachers. Uh, he's done a, just a couple more years of training uh, than I have. Um, but uh, we, we've, we both were seeing a lot of the same things related to this concept of inquiry-based learning and what, and what does it mean? And we would constantly run into um, uh, educators where they would... Um, think that oh, maybe inquiry just means I just need to bombard the child with questions and 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 that's how they'll learn to um, to ask good questions but oftentimes the questions were closed-ended or they just didn't uh, stretch children's thinking far mm -hmm. enough but the thing that we were most worried about is you know the rest of all of developmental science that is out there that tells us how we should um, interact with children to help support their development in optimal ways. And so we were really concerned about how some teachers turned inquiry into a, a very demanding task for young children, a very authoritarian type of a task. And we were especially concerned with how there was uh, not a big emphasis on helping children develop the uh, self-regulation skills that they would need to engage in inquiry in a meaningful way. And so that's kind of where that, that, uh, that idea came up, uh, came from the quote of how can we support inquiry without the inquisition? Um, because it, that's just kind of what it felt like when we would observe teachers mm -hmm. sometimes of um, the teacher would feel like, I really need to drag this answer out of the child and that the and that the goal of inquiry education inquiry based learning was for the child to give the correct answer um, which we didn't see it that way um, and and then when you look into when you dig into developmental science you you tend to find that uh, especially related to inquiry based learning um, or formulating questions those types of lines of research that uh, we do want to keep it open ended we do want to give children a lot of space to be wrong uh, mm -hmm. because the stakes are low right now. Um, uh, when they're three, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, these are the times when 
they should be able to uh, be wrong and uh, and not have that not have everything be high stakes and that's what it kind of felt like with the teachers mm-hmm. that every question almost was oh if they don't get this right then there's something really amiss and uh, and we just see it uh, differently uh, because i think that you know we just take more of a developmental approach and and really try to integrate developmentally appropriate practice into everything that we do in a really in a really meaningful way and so that that's kind of where it it um, it came from and then some of the other angles in the article were also related to those experiences that we've had over the years as well mm-hmm. yeah i think inquiry based um has become one of the things i, I say a lot is that as a field, early childhood education, we're really good at just creating euphemisms. When there's a new, when there's new research, we like change the name of what we're doing, but we don't really change the game. And I think inquiry-based falls in that category for me, that we're still very much in that skill and drill mindset sometimes, um, but we're calling it inquiry-based. So somehow it's, it's gentler or more appropriate, but haven't really changed our practice. Mm-hmm. What would you, what would you add, Dr. William? Well, First of all, it's helpful for us to step back and remember that inquiry-based learning is creating the space and time within which the child can learn through discovery, Hmm. not some adult-directed activity. And so that's what Chad's getting at when he's saying that, gosh, we, we... pose too many direct questions at children. Instead, inquiry-based learning isn't us throwing questions at children that can be answered yes or no. That's the definition of a closed-ended question, Mm -hmm. a question that can be answered yes or no. But just raise open-ended questions like, I wonder what'll happen if the popcorn popper gets hot enough, what do you think will happen with those popcorn kernels if we're doing a science experiment like that I always called in my Head Start and Migrant Head Start classroom, kitchen chemistry. Uh And so then the children start wondering, hmm, what will have, oh, it'll be hot or they'll come up with thoughts and there's no right or wrong answer. It's just having them think. Mm -hmm. And then when that first kernel pops, then they start thinking about the process of, oh, this is what happened. Even if they cannot articulate the laws of physics that are behind it. Yeah. I think time, you talked about time and having time for that discovery. I think that's one of the, the barriers that's hard to overcome sometimes because we're so used to our rigid childcare, early childhood schedule where it's 20 minutes of this and then 20 minutes of that. And we, it's not science time right now. So we're not doing that. And, and, um, (laughs) so you're both nodding and, and, and covering your faces. What, um, I guess, what would you say to someone who brought that argument to you and said, yeah, you say time and I agree it's important, but I, it just doesn't work to give them more time. Well, those those demands often come from somebody that's above the teacher, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Whether it's the administrator of the program or the, um, 
Board of Education or the way that the state has things laid out. Um, most teachers, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say all, but I would say that almost all early childhood teachers that I've worked with over the years have talked about if they weren't already doing it, but they would love to have those big blocks mm -hmm. of time for children to engage in things. And that's how, um, you know, every, every classroom that I've been responsible for, that's what I did. And what's interesting is that, you know, as you, as you dig more into the literature, you start to find that that's really what children need. But you have um, works from uh, Maria Montessori, um, other writers from, you know, 100 years ago who were saying children need these gigantic blocks of time, three hours or so to really dig into concepts. And, uh, and so that's just I've just always embraced that and, and not had too much uh, pushback. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that a lot of that comes down to just being ready to articulate to whoever the, whoever the, my boss is, for lack of a better term, the importance of that and be able to do that in a way that's convincing. And if, and, and if, you, if a person can't do that, then you know, I, I just think back to, you know, this, this is an exchange article and uh, there's, a, there's another exchange uh, resource. Um, I might mess up the name, but I believe it's, um, it's called Guerrilla Teaching Tactics. And it's well, we've about recorded about that one too. Okay, great, great. <laughs> and uh, I just I love that framing because there there were certainly times, especially early in my career, where I felt like I was doing basically that and just never had a word for it. You know, mm -hmm. where I was um, just trying to sneak in developmentally appropriate practice. Um, you know, such a rebel, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, but you know, I think that there there are elements of that as well. And when we look at, um, I mean. Uh, the, uh, I'm sure that you're familiar with this, Heather, but just for some of the listeners yeah. who may not be, you know, when you look at studies into how, to, how do early educators spend their day, most of the day is spent in uh, what I would say are wastes of time, um, things like waiting, things mm -hmm. like transitions that just get stretched out, stretched out, stretched out to be too long because the environment isn't set up. I mean, a classic example is I've worked with educators where they um, are in a building where there is no restroom in the classroom. So they have to yeah. take all the kids to the restroom down the hall. And some of them feel like they have to do that every 45 minutes or so because young children need to use the restroom a lot <laughs> uh, when you've got a group of 20 or so. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they spend a lot of time doing that, but it's not that they don't have the time. It's that the environment that they're in isn't developmentally appropriate from that foundational level. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a knock-on effect is that it eats up their time to be able to do those types of things. But other ways that I found to work around it is not to think in, uh, in terms of at the end of this block, then this task has to be finished and find ways to use, you know, things like project-based learning that you can come back to over and over and you can continue that process because mm -hmm. you may be in a situation where you have no choice and you have to go to the library at this time. <clears throat> have to do x y or z at this time um outdoor time is, is a common one yeah. where you know you you've only got a certain block that you need to go outside um and so i would just leave things or take things out with us i've done that before too you know so just thinking you know thinking outside the box sometimes um can be helpful and just thinking about how can i continue along this um, line of inquiry that the children have started and how can i 
continue to keep the momentum going. Um, and I think that that's just something that takes practice. Yes, and I, and confidence in your own mm -hmm. sort of philosophy that's guiding that. And I think that's where people get nervous is they if, sure. if they, they think if I have to try and defend this, I won't be able to do it effectively or I'm nervous about that or I don't like confrontation or they're worried about getting fired. Nobody's firing anyone in early childhood right now. <laughs> like we, Exactly, we, right. We need to keep everyone who's currently in those jobs. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, where was I going to, what was I going to ask? Did you have something you wanted to add? Well, I, I'm just thinking about how important it is for the early care and education provider, the early childhood educator to understand that we are not people who sit on babies. <laughs> this is a profession like medicine, like law, like engineering. This is a profession. And as Chad said at the beginning of the hour, this is the most important job in society outside of raising your own children. Taking care of the emotional, social, and cognitive needs of the most important members of society, young children. And so for us to get caught up in thinking that some supervisor, some administrator is gonna chastise you for not sticking to the curriculum, some 20 minute block, just <laughs> you're, you're underestimating your power. Mm -hmm. it, it's as you so astutely stated earlier, Heather, you just have to articulate it, what you're doing to defend. When I had this classroom in St. Louis, the superintendent of public instruction would send people to observe what this guy is doing with this 40 children, because mm -hmm. in those days, the classroom size wasn't easy like it is now. <laughs> Nowadays, teachers whine that they have 25 children. In those days, it was 40 kids in a classroom. Wow. And I had 40 kids who were all labeled behavior disordered. Yeah. <laughs> and since I could easily manage 40 kids by just having an open classroom setting where I didn't have timed activities, learning stations that children could flow in and out of as they wanted to, then all you have to do is be able to defend your position when the principal or the assistant superintendent of instruction or the superintendent comes and says, oh, William, explain to me how this is better than having the kids sitting in rows and lecturing them. <clears throat> yeah. And you will not get as much pushback as you fear you'll get mm -hmm. if you don't stick to those 15 or 20 minute unrealistic right. time periods. Right. And I think also, because I used to be a center director from that perspective, I didn't have time 
to know, to know if you were sticking to your schedule um, every day for yeah. uh, for the whole time and, and moving through everything that you needed to do. Um, so I want to I want to uh, go back specifically to the to the idea of developmentally appropriate science uh, that is in the article, but also Chad, you mentioned it earlier, and just ask you each to speak to what that looks like for you or what that means in your mind. Um, compare it to what, you know, maybe other practices are. Sure. The, the thing that we are struggling with, I think, as a field is this idea that the only, the only things that really matter are, are literacy and math. Um, and a lot of that has to do with how we do our, our standardized testing right. in, in, uh, in third grade, for example. Mm -hmm and how things are tied to funding and all that, all that jazz that we won't, won't get into. And but, those two um, things are easily observable too, I think is why we really get tied into those two oh, pieces. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I, I've always thought even early on in, in my uh, bachelor's program that really we could use science as our main focus when you, if you, if you want to classify things in academic subjects and you could, reach every other academic subject pretty easily through science. There's a lot of math in science. There's a lot of reading in science. There's a lot of social studies in science. Mm -hmm. um, there are um, lots of opportunities to go in a lot of different directions with, with science education. So my view really is that science education is the core element to an effective uh, curriculum for not just young children, but mm -hmm. I think for, for all ages. Um, I do uh, right now. I'm I'm an adjunct at three different universities, <laughs> oh all in God. early childhood programs, and um, you know I really emphasize that you know what what we do is a combination of science and art, um, mm -hmm. and that uh, through those um, through that type of a perspective, one thing I think is it, is it helps uh, you know elevate the work that we do as uh, early childhood professionals. But I think it also is the key to really understanding what this field is all about. And I think that that needs to permeate into everything, including how we work with young children, that when we are using a, a science-based uh, curriculum initially, right off the bat, that we will find that with relative ease, we can hit all the learning goals that we might be mandated to mm -hmm. teach, mm -hmm. um, whether that's state standards or the standards of your um, curriculum or the standards of your the program that your yeah. school has uh, has embraced. And so I, I see it as uh, non-negotiable that we have to have a science-focused curriculum for young children, and not just for well, yeah, we're going to hit reading and math. But also because I think that that is the uh, it's the the best um, method we have for uh, aligning with what developmental science tells us children need to thrive. You know, executive function skills and self regulation and protecting children's curiosity. All those sorts of things are pretty easy in a science focused curriculum, in my experience. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I I was reading something recently. Um, I think it, I think the book was rethinking readiness in early childhood education. It's a collection of essays, um, and this one statement was like: children come to us as 
question marks and we try to turn them into periods or <laughs> they come to us as question marks and exclamation points and we try to turn them into periods. Um, and I thought that fits so well in just my thinking about uh, academic content areas and what you've just talked about, Chad. It's all interrelated. Um, and if we're doing it in a way that fits what we know children are need and can do and are interested in, um, what's really valuable for, for lifelong learning, you know, it would, it would be more, they'd be leaving us with the same question mark and exclamation point they came in with. <laughs> um, so that, yeah, thank you for that. And how about you, Dr. William? Well, I think first we, we need to look at the big picture of how early childhood professionals view themselves mm, yes and the average early care and education professional tends to be afraid of science mm -hmm. and so they feel oh what i'm supposed to teach science mm -hmm. well in the first place in inquiry-based learning we're not teaching because learning is something that's caught it's not taught subsequently I can't teach you anything that you're not ready to be right. responsive to picking up. So when adults are afraid of the subjects that are talked about in academia, like science, that's probably the main impetus behind early childhood educators wanting to stick to just uh, counting and uh, talking about literacy. Mm -hmm. But as Chad so astutely stated, if we center our curriculum in an integrated way, you have language arts and math skills already in everything, mm -hmm. even if it's art. Yes. Math and language is built right in. So in theory, the whole classroom should be based on art expression and scientific inquiry-based learning activities. Yeah. And so or when the adults, play, as we sometimes call it, <laughs> absolutely. Well, it all has to be play based, yeah. absolutely. <clears throat> and it's so that fear of, oh, I don't know how to talk to kids about science. Yeah. That isn't what we have to do. A child might ask you, mommy, where do babies come from? And you're not going to start explaining sperm, egg, and procreation. Mm -hmm. So it's the same way with inquiry learning in a classroom that's filled with learning stations that focus on things like art expression and which brings geometry into the play mm -hmm. and scientific activities like just having a pet rabbit or a mouse in the center plants that the children are growing these are all science activities mm -hmm. yeah and and i think it's um an interesting point that uh dr mosier brought up about you know the feeling maybe uh 
in feelings of inadequacy around can I really teach science? Can I really teach math? And there's some interesting mm -hmm. studies into this that those types of feelings that a lot of educators have are linked to their own early yeah. childhood experiences, you know? Yeah. And so we have almost this cycle of, well, gosh, I mean, when I was in, uh, when I was in elementary school and it was time to do math, that triggered a lot of anxiety because the teacher was so demanding or mm -hmm. the teacher was so authoritarian. Yeah. And then that drives them as an adult to feel like, ooh, I'm not a math person. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many students I have who will say, I'm not a math person, I'm not a science person, I'm not an artist. And you just have to think about what is echoing from their early childhood that yeah. causes them to think those ways and then how that shapes their approaches with young children as well. And then we that's why I think this field is so interesting is because you have not only the influence of developmental science with how I'm going to interact with young children, but also what does developmental science tell me about myself and why I do the things that I do. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, the, uh, um, I, I think that that's just an interesting phenomenon that you can see uh, pretty regularly when you interact with a lot mm -hmm. of students, you see that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. We at, at the community college where um, I'm teaching now, actually, it's where I also got my associate's degree and um, knew the, I'm the program chair now, but I knew the previous program chair for a long time. And um, she used to talk about how students would save their math class and their science class for the last semester and sometimes not finish their degree because of that. Um, and I guess this is just the all exchange magazine all the time episode, because I also have an old article from exchange about teachers math anxiety that that talks about just the kinds of things that you're you're talking about. I remember science I wasn't comfortable with at all. And I remember sitting in math classes and feeling like everyone in this room must have gone to a secret meeting that I wasn't invited to because I don't have any clue. And they're all nodding and doing their their, pro their problems and stuff. And I just couldn't get it. So um, yeah, it takes a lot of work on ourselves in this area too. Like we have to figure out what is, what does math look like for a three-year-old? Because my memory of math is a third grader, you know? So what does it look right. like for a three-year-old? And then we see, oh, that's manageable. <laughs> I can do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and science too, I think falls into that. Right. I mean, I think it's just, um, it's the core, I think, of developmentally appropriate practice, following children's lead is, is what it comes down to. Yeah. And that can be scary too. There are plenty of people I've worked with where they don't like having, they don't like that feeling of not knowing what's going to happen next. They really like the idea of, I know exactly what's going to happen because it's on my schedule, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that there, that plays into it as well, but I think there's a lot to be said for, uh, you know, reflecting on those feelings in ways that are almost critically analyzing yourself and thinking, you know, are the things that I'm saying, you know, are, are, are the yes buts that I'm coming up with for why I can't do these things legitimate or are they things that I'm creating as a distraction so I can avoid it because yeah. I just haven't reflected enough on why do I feel that way? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's something that I try to challenge uh, my students to do um, with, but, you know, admittedly with mixed results because 
there's a lot of resistance to that sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It's a hard thing to ask <laughs> exactly. for people, yes. especially mm-hmm. if they are not used to being reflective or no one has ever mm-hmm. invited them to practice reflection before to start right. with. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, now we're really going to focus on you and why, <laughs> why this is so uncomfortable for you. Yeah. Or <laughs> just their, their preconceived notions of what, what it means to work with young children mm-hmm. in a classroom environment where they you know, they may see it as more of a mechanical process where I see it as more of a organic process. Um, and, uh, and, and so they, they have that as well. So there's just mm-hmm. so much. Um, and, I, and I get this feedback from students a lot from uh, various courses that I've taught. Of They'll talk about how they feel like they, you know, learned a lot about themselves just mm-hmm. from something as seemingly mundane as designing a lesson plan. Um, and doing it in a way that's really reflective helped them uh, realize that there were things that they uh, didn't really know about themselves before, which I think is always nice to mm-hmm. see. That's a whole other episode. Right, exactly. <laughs> put a, put yeah. a pin in that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a long pause now. I just wondered if, if you were going to jump in here, Dr. Okay. Well, because inquiry-based learning is so unpredictable, the average adult is uncomfortable with not knowing, as Chad said, okay, what's going to fill the next five minutes? What's going to fill the next 10 minutes? And this, this is one good reason why reading books spending half of the day in an early care and education environment just reading picture books to children should be the curriculum (laughs) because there are so many children's books that address art and science but as you were saying at the level that a three-year-old, a four-year-old can understand. So it, it never ceases to amaze me. Every time I hear someone say, oh, Dr. William, I have no idea how you were able to memorize the curriculum that you have to teach with a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, <gasps> all in one classroom. Wait a minute. Raise and I would ask my college students, raise your hand if you know how to read. <laughs> I've never had a student who didn't raise their hand yeah. saying they know how to read. Uh, raise your hand if you know simple edition. <laughs> and just counting one, two, three, four, five, one plus one is two. So the the level of math difference I've had. Uh, early childhood educators who didn't want to combine classrooms for three and four-year-olds because they said, oh, the curriculum's too different. That's ridiculous. It's not. (laughs) If you're over three and you already know how to read, you got your bases covered. (laughs) No problem. Right. (laughs) That's a good good perspective, a good reframing of of what some of people, some people fear, I think. Um, so I have one more, one more topic I want to hear you both talk about. Um, you've both mentioned self-regulation. That's a very popular sort of trendy 
uh, phrase in the field right now uh, for, I mean, for good reason, but sometimes it gets lost. Um, again, it becomes a euphemism for compliance <laughs> in my mind sometimes. But so you both mentioned it in terms of inquiry-based inquiry -based learning, uh, helping to build that self-regulation. And I just would love to hear more about that thinking. Sure. So, uh, so I'll start and then I'll toss it over to, to Dr. Mosier. Um, at its core, it has to come back to what I see as, as a foundational understanding if you want to work with young children, and that's the power of modeling. Um, there are many uh, students I've worked with over the years that really struggle with this idea that we want to be a model for the things that we want children to do rather than just demand it or direct them to do those things while we're mm -hmm. doing something else. It's right in the, the newest um, edition of developmentally appropriate practice in one of the charts of what's developmentally appropriate versus things to avoid. Uh, and I'm, I might butcher it a, a bit here because I'm just <laughs> doing it from memory, but in one of the columns, I forget what age range, but it's for things to avoid. And it says, something along the lines of, it's not realistic to expect children to engage in behavior or engage in activities or anything at all that they don't have a model for. And I think that um, that really uh, is one of the key um, pieces to uh, self-regulation is that if every, if every message out of your mouth is directive, then how can you say that you're building self-regulation skills? Mm -hmm. And when we think about some of the, uh, you know, the 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 uh, t study from uh, the Tennessee pre-K study that w recently came out, that uh, in the media it was seen as, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that happened. But anyone that has a background in developmental science was thinking, well, duh. I mean, when you <laughs> read the details of the program, yep. It was way too controlling. They weren't really building self-regulation skills. They were controlling children externally rather than building that internal feeling of I can control my own behavior. Mm -hmm. I can be a, a member of this classroom. That's why in, in our article, ev all of the example questions are phrased with a first person singular bend. Um, and then that also ties into children's needs, need for autonomy. It ties mm -hmm. into things like the Gatsky and, and Piaget and self-talk concepts, things like that too. And what's interesting is, you know, after we wrote this article, I found um, a, a study uh, about a year later that really interrogated this idea of I wonder questions. And, and um, one of the things that that study found was that the, uh, the I wonder formulations, uh, formulating questions that way, um, really invited children to participate rather than expecting them to participate. Mm -hmm. And we really think about <clears throat> the things that everybody learns in their uh, teacher education programs, things like children need autonomy, they need uh, to be able to engage in, in initiative, all those things that teachers can often say, but then when they when the rubber hits the road, it kind of falls apart. They tend to do things that you know are are the traditions of education rather than what developmental science says. So I think that um, that's kind of the the strongest uh, link between those two concepts is that when you build this environment for inquiry based science, where you're a model for 
how do you engage in this? Children take that up and then that becomes uh, self-regulation rather than you demanding that, okay, it's science time for the next 20 minutes and we're gonna do these and, and I hope you get these answers right or else <laughs> I'm not doing my job. Um, you know, helping children understand uh, that there's this, um, uh, that we can helping children understand by our own understanding that we can help cultivate self-regulation and self-directedness. Mm-hmm. So to respond to your issue, I, I think when, when we look at that phrase, self-regulation, my generation, the term was called self-directed learning. Mm. And now the, it's changed to this reframing as self-regulation, but it really hasn't changed. The research is the same from 50 years ago. We know for sure that if we as adults are modeling the very behavior we want to see in children, then because they see us as gods with a small g, they're going to want to copy what we do. Mm-hmm. And so it is really tragic when adults start telling kids what to do instead of modeling what we'd like them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working with a, a family today who came to the rehabilitation center specifically because the this boy has been kicked out of his kindergarten for hitting other kids. And so you tactfully talk to the parents and the grandparents because they have quite big extended families here. And sure enough, what do you think happens at home? He gets role modeling for hitting Hitting. because... Uh, mother says, oh, I never hit my son. She starts out. Finally, she says, well, actually, I I don't want him to think that I'm hurting him. So I use a coat hanger. Oh, shit. So yeah. The point is that if I want children to develop self-regulation, that is, to have independent living skills, to not do something because they're afraid that if they don't do it, some adult will punish them, Mm -hmm. but rather to regulate their own behavior for intrinsic reason, then the way to handle that, the way to condition that into children is to be a role model for speaking quietly, a role model for touching people gently, a role model for <laughs> tender, loving care. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, that's I I I think about that when I when I'm talking to people about um, behavior, challenging behavior that challenges us. Whatever. Um, I hate that I even have to use those words, but you have to use those words to communicate what you're talking about. I guess. Um, and I talk about modeling or even just sometimes I just, just say what you wish they'd thought in that moment. Like just say yourself what you wish they had thought. And that can become their self-talk over time. Um, that feels like, well, then I'm not doing anything. Well, then he's getting away with it. And it, that's not 
you know, you're, you're going in circles if that's the thinking, because how they learn is from watching us and having repeated experiences of us being self-regulated. Um, and that's hard for, for some folks because we have in our brains that something bad should happen if there's a misbehavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there's uh, what's it called? The just world hypothesis that everybody gets what they deserve, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that, uh, yeah, I think that that muddies the waters a lot when you're talking about behavior or children, um, you know, uh, complying for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um this idea that yeah we have to kind of that we have to kind of balance that out that because they did something wrong we have to do something wrong to them <laughs> yes um yeah. and but not but then at the same time you know I, i'll have i've worked with many students and teachers over the years that will say that but then in another breath they'll also say oh yeah modeling is important <laughs> yeah. um you know and i i feel like that's such a big issue in our field um in addition to what you said about you know how we tend to create euphemisms mm-hmm. um that uh we have a lot of uh, concepts that teachers uh, can, especially early career teachers uh, and students, they can articulate, but then once the rubber hits the road, sure. everything goes out the window because, mm-hmm. because there's, never been this, uh, there's never been this explicit connection between theory and, and practice. And so that's what uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Mosier and I do a lot in our training and in our, our courses is what does this look like when you are trying to implement these things? And that was mm-hmm. one of the goals behind the article is even drilling yeah. down to exactly like, what are the, what, how would you ask a question? Right. Um, which is uh, basically about as small scale as you can get is what are the actual words coming out of your mouth? But we found that that, that really helps people, mm-hmm. you know, connect the dots and think, oh, okay, well that, yeah, I understand now that this is supporting autonomy, this is supporting initiative, mm-hmm. this is supporting self-talk, this is tying into children's tendency for egocentrism, tying mm-hmm. into children's um, tendency to emulate the behaviors that they've seen. And, uh, and that's uh, another, another reason why I think this field is the best field you can go into because all of, the, uh, all of these um, concepts in developmental science, they just fit together so beautifully. And we can really, uh, I really get a lot of um, uh, professional satisfaction out of being able to shape a child's behavior without using punishment or rewards and being able to say that it is possible. And that, uh, you know, if we, if we really work hard, that, that we can, we can do this and that we know what to do. We know mm-hmm. what to do. We just need to, to do it and find yeah. ways to support people in doing those things. Hmm. Um, well, I need to wrap this conversation up, but it's been so good. And I have like three notes here of other things I want to have you come back and talk to me about sometime. So this has been great, but are there, are there any things that you were hoping to be able to say or talk through that you haven't been able to, we can end with, with that, if there's something you want to want to still get in. Yeah, I I would like to say that um, one of the things I ran into early in my career was um, you know, one of, one of the earliest jobs I had was as was as a, a toddler teacher, and um, and they I, I'm not going to name the curriculum that they were using, but they were using a curriculum where you would plan out you know a month in advance. Yeah. And I always thought, how do I know what? Because I worked with children as young as 16 months at that point, mm-hmm. and their interests, um, some of their interests were static, but many of the things they were interested in were literally 
every 15 minutes would right. change, you know? So how would I know 30 days in advance what they would be interested in? Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we ended up swapping to, um, to something called the Access Curriculum, um, which uh, is a science-based um, curriculum for children from infants through fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, designed at the University of Dayton, which is where I did my master's. And um, it's a great uh, tie-in to this article for teachers that are like, well, how do I how do I do this in a whole yeah. curric- at a curriculum level? Um, but yeah, it's called Access Curriculum, <laughs> and um, it's accesscurriculum.com, and um, you can find all the information on it there. Yeah, and uh, I have always uh, I've used it for a long time, and uh, the programs I've I've worked for. Um, have have used it. And um, it's a really nice way to take some of these, answer some of those bigger questions of, you know, if you're, uh, if if you're listening right now, and you're thinking, well, how do I convince, um, you know, my, my administrator, my principal, the director of curriculum that we can do these things, um, uh, access is is something that could give you some, some good ideas, and, and maybe something that you'd want to to look into further. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't get anything from that. I'm just a user, <laughs> okay. you know, um, I'm just a user, but it's been a really nice way to incorporate some of these concepts that we talk about in the article. And, and uh, I would even go so far as to say it, it inspired a lot of the um, more uh, nuanced takes that we have in, in the article mm, yeah. um, kind of kicked off from my experiences with that, uh, that curriculum. So yeah. I'm glad you said that because I have written at the top of the article access curriculum, but I couldn't remember if that was just a note I jotted down or if it was really related to this conversation. Yes. Yes. So good. Perfect. Thank you for getting, for working that in. Thank you. Um, How about you, Dr. William, any last thoughts? Well, I think it is vital that every early care and education professional get it that this is a profession. Mm -hmm. How come we know for sure, for sure, for sure that this is a profession? Because there's three identified criteria for what constitutes a profession. One, a body of scientific evidence for what we're supposed to do and what we should avoid doing. We certainly have a lot of data about what's developmentally appropriate practice and what is developmentally inappropriate practice. Second criteria is some sort of educational requirement to be in the field. And it doesn't have to be formal education, just some sort of educational background. You can't get Uh, early care and education license in most states unless you have a high school degree or some equivalency. Therefore, we meet the second criteria, academic requirement. Mm -hmm. And third, which is probably the most important and underappreciated in every profession, medicine, psychology, social work, nursing even, engineering, you have a requirement for continuing education Mm -hmm. to keep your early care and education provider 
certificate or license in whichever state a person is in, they have to do some required educational experience. Often in most states, it's like 12 hours. Mm -hmm. if for, for my license, I need 50 hours every year. Mm -hmm. So 12 hours might seem overwhelming to people, but it's a requirement if we're gonna call ourselves professionals and we are professionals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's important. It's a, it's, I think it's a more controversial issue than it needs to be. Like, I know there are some folks who, who think we, um, we don't need to talk about ourselves in terms of a profession, but I, um, I agree with, with what you said. I think it's so important for the children, of course, but also for ourselves as the folks doing the work. Um, well, I want to say the name of the article one more time in case they want to folks listening want to look it up. So it's called Promoting Inquiry-Based Science Education. And we'll put uh, probably exchange usually hooks me up with a link that I can hook on to the podcasts and things. So people will be able to access it easily. Thank you both so much for coming on and making time to do this. And I uh, do look forward to maybe talking with you more in the future. Um, and with that, uh, this has been another episode of that early childhood nerd. Come back again next week and we'll have more, uh, more good nerdy conversation for you. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.